HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Shaxbury Cider. This week on Meet and 3, we're getting semantic to understand the deeper meaning behind some of the foods we love. First, we'll look at the big debate happening around the word milk. Who the hell are you to tell me what is the name of my product and my landscape and everything we've cared about when, you know, you don't have anything invested in except to put out a little money to buy it? <laughs> it's our entire life. Then we get the lowdown on the language of cider. So the first thing that's really confusing about dryness is that it has nothing to do with how something actually feels in your mouth. And finally, we get our fill of tiki talk. You don't walk into a tiki bar and be like, oh yeah, this is what Polynesia is probably like. Like, it's, it's supposed to be like fantasy and stuff. That's the hard part. It's so easy to do tiki bad, and that's where it gets a bad name. Tune into this week's episode of Meat and 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen podcast, Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome culinary icon and frequent Julia Child collaborator, Chef Jacques Pepin. In this episode, we're going to talk to Jacques about his latest projects, another Emmy Award, and we'll get a treasure trove of Jacques' best Julia moments. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. From the start of her career, Julia was all about collaboration. Despite her rather singular fame, she rarely did any of it alone. While it's fair to say she really made mastering the art of French cooking happen, it was birthed out of a collaboration with her friend Simone Beck and Louisette Bertol. On TV, the French chef was all Julia on camera, but she was supported by a much larger team at WGBH, including producers Russ Marash and Ruth Lockwood. 
Not to mention her husband, Paul Child, who really helped Julia hone her on-air persona. Someone else Julia collaborated with to great success was her dear friend, Chef Jacques Pepin. Behind the scenes, Jacques and Julia's relationship was rooted in their mutual love of cooking and desire to advance the stature of cooking teachers, particularly in reaching out to home cooks. Together in 2001, Julia and Jacques won a Daytime Emmy Award for Outstanding Hosts of their 22-part PBS series, Julia and Jacques Cooking at Home, which followed on from their beloved Julia and Jacques Cooking in Concert specials. Outside of his collaboration with Julia, Jacques Pepin has had a storied career in food. Born and raised in France, Jacques became a professional chef there, even at one point working as a private chef to Charles de Gaulle, before immigrating to the United States. Once in America, he was the executive chef for Howard Johnson's before writing his groundbreaking book, La Technique, which helped steer his career towards becoming a television star slash, as I'm sure he'd prefer to say, television teacher. He's made hundreds of hours of television produced with KQED-TV, the most recent of which was Jacques Pepin, Heart and Soul, in 2015, and has authored, by my count, more than 25 books on cooking. Like Julia, he received one of France's highest honors, the Légion d'honneur, in 2004, as well as some 24 James Beard Foundation awards. He currently serves as Dean of Special Programs at the International Culinary Center, formerly known as the French Culinary Institute, in New York City. It is always an honor and a privilege to talk to Jacques Pepin. Welcome to the podcast, Jacques. Well, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So before we talk about you and Julia, let's just talk about you. And you recently started a new foundation and wanted to hear much more about that and particularly why you decided to focus on culinary training. Well, actually, uh, you know, it's my son-in-law and my daughter. My son-in-law, Rolly, is a chef for 25 years. Uh, he teaches at Johnson & Well. And uh, he started that foundation for me. Uh, we discussed it and uh, I thought it was a great idea because I have so many video of technique and I have 30 book and using those video and technique and book we wanted to teach uh, you know disenfranchised people like people coming out of jail come homeless people drug addict veteran you know people like that who usually are in a community kitchen but the community kitchen whether it's in Hartford here or in New York or in Boston or in Seattle uh, they don't really have any program. They don't do the same thing. So in establishing a program with the technique so that if people can learn those basic things, uh, then they can be employed and join back the workforce. In addition, they supply, uh, you know, those community kitchens with enough money to buy whatever they need from, uh, you know, from different pot pans and, uh, and equipment and even, uh, even, uh, uh, you know, clothes for the, the cook and so forth. So that's what we do. And how I know you kind of only recently launched what last year, and and where are you sort of in the, the phase of rolling out the the, the training? Well, uh, we started a couple of years ago, but we've done very well. Last week, we have the big uh, the big meet of the Jacques Pepin Foundation on Thursday at the Yale Club in New York, and we raised five hundred thousand dollars. You know, so that was quite. Good, and we have all of the chefs, you know, from uh, Jose Andres to Andrew Zimmer, Carla Hall, Tom Colicchio, and many others were there. So it was really very uh, moving for me, you know. So, 
Well, I think it's really lovely. The foundation is you, as you just said, started with your son-in-law and your daughter, Claudine. And so it's kind of all in the family. And yep. then you had this wider family of all the people you've worked with over the years. You've been been helping out to, to help get the foundation um, to help grow the foundation. Yes, and I think it can help people, you know. So, I mean, Julia knew that too. When we did, uh, uh, she has different scholarship as I do. And when you see someone that you know uh, could never afford either Boston University or the French Culinary Institute in New York where I teach, and you see them uh, 10 years later as being executive chef in an hotel too, you know you've changed the life of someone, and that feels good. Absolutely, yes. It did. Nothing is more gratifying than giving um, scholarships to have someone who dreams about a career in food or in the kitchen and then see how they've progressed and what's happened down the line now. Absolutely. And what? so you, you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I think in the kind of the present. Um, but in the future, like what? what's your hope and aspiration that, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what the foundation will be able to achieve? Again, the foundation will work with, with over 100 different uh, community kitchens, or more than that, uh, in the country. And we work with that. A bunch of them, but especially uh, establishing a curriculum for the cook, which uh, any cook who come and is able to do, we haven't finished the curriculum completely, but from peeling an asparagus to poaching an egg to boning out a chicken, so they will have to go through that kind of a accreditation uh, uh, you know that I have in my technique and so forth. And with that, they'll be able to rejoin the workplace. So that's uh, that's a good thing to do. And it, I'm not talking about young people, 22. I'm not talking about people to work at, uh, I don't know, Daniel or, or Perse in New York. I'm talking about people 30, 40, 50 years old, just to rejoin the, you know, the, the cooking world and have a, you know, a small eating place somewhere, yeah. Yeah, no, I think one of the things that we've noticed at the Jewel Child Foundation is there are a lot of these kind of programs or a lot of people wanting to start these programs. Do you really see the foundation becoming more of a sort of resource and clearinghouse than actually the service provider? I think so, yeah. That's what uh, my son-in-law wants to do. In fact, you know, last week, we were very proud of it. He got his PhD last week and he did a, a doctorate in education. And basically, his doctoral uh, dissertation deal with that type of uh, that type of problem and what we are doing at the foundation. Yeah, no, I think from from our foundation side, we we really see the vast need for that, and that unfortunately, a lot of people, because America is such a big country and disconnected, they're kind of always trying to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. And you know, our great hope for your foundation is that you can really help people avoid doing that by saying look, if you want to do it, great, here's a curriculum and hopefully here's some funding or here's how to get funding to, to further it. Do you, do you feel like... Yes, because you, uh, you see the, the, that curriculum is not, is not based on, the, on the French cooking, for example, and it's based on technique more. And that's why I have book, you know, my book on technique and others that I've done, I did that in 1974 and it's still in print because the way you sharpen a knife or, or beat an egg white or peel an asparagus or bone out a chicken is the same whether you cook Italian, Spanish, uh, Greek or whatever. So uh, that's what we want to teach, those basic techniques. 
Well, I think it's wonderful, and we wish you great success, and we'll look forward to, I, we'll have to have Raleigh and Claudine on to, in 10, 20 years to give us an update oh, on good. what's been achieved. Good, good. <laughs> I won't be around. <laughs> well, you never know. Oh, yeah. You're still going strong. <laughs> yeah. So. On so on May third in twenty nineteen, uh-huh. in Julia's hometown of Pasadena, no, no less, right. you were going to receive the Emmy Award for Lifetime Achievement at the forty sixth annual Daytime Creative Arts Emmys. Right. The first time such an award has been given to someone in the culinary programming category. Right. So, what does it mean to you to be the first person recognized by the Television Academy in this context? Uh, I'm kind of a, you know. Astounded as well as <laughs> delighted, uh, I, I know that uh, uh, I am in line. Many people uh, could have received that uh, before me, certainly uh, uh, Julia and, and Craig Leborn and uh, uh, even Anthony Bourdain or James Beard. So, but uh, this is now that the, the food world is coming in a you know in a way that it has never been before. I mean, considering that Jose Andres is being nominated for a Nobel Prize. So, you know, it, it's just amazing what's going on. And I think, I'm sure that uh, Julia would be delighted with that. And I am, of course, delighted. I mean, a bit uh, uh, anxious in a sense, but uh, I don't really know. I've never been that much in that world. And so I don't really know exactly, I know what it means, but not, not completely, maybe. <laughs> Well, I, I think after your, your long career, it's nice to have a still be going to an event that's surprising or where you feel like you, there's a learning curve. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yes, because, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm in another world. So, Well, yes, but I don't know how many hundreds of maybe thousands of hours of television you've done. That's why you're getting the award. So you're certainly part of that world in that context. Yes, to a certain extent. That's true. But I mean, you know, as... Julia used to say, too, we are not actors. You know, we are who we are. I mean, I'm not uh, Dr. Kilder, you know, one <laughs> week and someone else uh, next year. You know, I am who I am and I do things the way I do. Uh, and uh, so it was for Julia. So, uh, but it's certainly fantastic to have that type of recognition. So it was curious. I, w- I was there when in 2015, you became the first recipient of the Foundation's own Julia Child Award. And I was curious how, how you might compare the two events and experience. Obviously, one's already happened and one's to come. But how, how do you think they, they will compare? Well, there is similarity, of course, when you re- you know, we received some touch of an accolade. But uh, with Julia, I think it was something much more personal for me because I was friends with her for close to half a century. And uh, it was really a type of food world that we knew. And so for me, the the, the recognition with Julia was uh, very meaningful this way, on a personal level, you know, so it's different than that. Yes, there, there might be more of a cast of thousands at the Creative Arts Emmys. Yeah. And d- does anything stand out in your mind from, from, from that night, receiving the Julia Child Award and getting your copper pan? Oh, yeah. Uh, of course, a lot of it thing in my mind, from Sarah Moulton to, uh, to all of the people who were there, that was, uh, and many of my friends. So, as I said, it was very personal that way. So, uh, yeah, it was a great evening, so... Yeah, no, it was. It was magical. So we've talked a bit about collaboration already, and I I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about that, given your experience. 
because I think I feel like you know while you like Julia have a certain kind of singular fame, mm-hmm. it's also come from collaborating and working with a lot of people. Whether it's going all the way back to a restaurant kitchen before you were very well known, or with your books, or on your TV shows. So I, I was I was hoping you might have the secret to share with everybody about what is the secret to developing long-standing collaborative relationships. Well, certainly you have to have respect for uh, for one another and uh, you have to keep an open mind but actually on television i felt comfortable with julia i do with my daughter claudine with my dear friend jean claude uh, but not that many other people to tell you the truth very often i know when i was doing theory at kqed that tina the producer said let's bring some other chef and we did sometime but you know, when you have another chef coming to cook here from, I don't know, Alice Water to uh, any other people, you don't want to uh, to, uh, to interrupt them. You don't want to, uh, uh, you know, put yourself in front of them. You want to give them. So it's, it's, it's not that easy. And uh, unless you are, as I was, very friend with Julia, so I could uh, interrupt her as well as she interrupted me and uh, discuss and have disagreement and so forth. So uh, th- you cannot really do that with everybody. Even with a friend like Roland Passo with a, a great chef in San Francisco, two-star restaurant, he's from my hometown in France. He came on the show, but you know he's doing something so I don't want to interrupt it. It's, and it's his own thing. It's not something that basically we are doing together. So it was different. But then... Uh, uh, in a, in a professional kitchen, of course, it's another thing. There is much more discipline and uh, there is less talking. You know, the chef say do this, that, to ordering, to pick up. You don't have to worry about uh, the entertainment part if you want or, or, or discussing that with the public. So, uh, uh, but uh, certainly in a professional kitchen, the teamwork is very, very important. Yeah. And and do you think that that discipline of having learned that you don't really have a successful professional kitchen unless you are working together, do you think that, because I, I know what you're saying about being on camera with Julia and that, you know, working with people you already have a good rapport makes it work better. But obviously you have to get to the place of having relationships that you could even do that. And yeah. do you think that's just innate in your personality or something you learned in, in the in your years of experience? Well, I guess, I guess, yes, both. I mean, to a certain extent, uh, when you're in a professional kitchen, you know, the teamwork is extremely, extremely important. I've seen, it is not, I mean, the chefs now are much more likely to sign their auditions and make sure they know that I'm the one who did that too, uh, which before, uh, in all my training, and I know the training of Julian Paris too in the late 40s and 50s, it was conformity. You know, you conform to the kitchen. You do whatever is done there. When I work at the Plaza Athene in Paris, we did the lobster souffle, which was quite well known there. We were 48 chefs in the kitchen. I'm sure the 48 chefs could have done it and you would never have known which had done it. So the idea was more conformity. Now uh, the chef wants to sign his own creation much more than it used to be. So it's it's a different way of working. Although, right, in today's world, the, the chefs who have multiple restaurants and, you know, at, at a high standard in particular, though, they are 
do not think that they're bringing up chefs who can do the the lobster souffle, if you will. You can't run multiple restaurants unless you have delegated people who can do your signature yeah, food. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> the first one doing that from Wolfgang Puck, certainly to, to uh, uh, Jean-Georges, you know, or, or Daniel, those are really, really very good at delegating, at training people, opening a restaurant. And uh, I don't know whether I would have been good at that. I mean, I've never had several restaurants at the same time, so I don't know. Maybe maybe I wouldn't. You know, I've been very good at that. <laughs> well, you're certainly, you know, well-known for being an excellent teacher, and I would have thought you can't, you, you can't get people to do your especially complex or sophisticated or com- complexly presented food unless you're a good teacher. Wouldn't, wouldn't you have thought that is an essential? Yeah, component? yeah, no, absolutely, no, absolutely. I mean, the teaching is essential, and uh, that's what I kind of object to some of the television shows that I see now, where there is so much yelling and screaming and competition that this is not really teaching. But, of course, this is television, so it does nothing. If the television goes to a place like uh, Daniel and uh, starts shooting, it's like a ballet, you know, with the chef ordering, pick up table four, two, there is no noise, two, it goes. And uh, after five minutes, the television says, that thing is really boring, you know, we're out of it. <laughs> <laughs> they want to go to a place where people are screaming, I'm not doing that crap, this, that. But in a kitchen, you don't run a kitchen this way, it doesn't work, you know. Yeah, well, I like that analogy, that the highest performing, most successful kitchens are quiet, and it and if you had a soundtrack, it would become like a ballet. Yeah, absolutely, yes, right, yeah. That's a lovely analogy. I can picture, I think you're, you're talking about Danielle and Daniel Belude in New York. Yes, you know? yes. Yes, I can see Danielle as the conductor in his immaculate kitchen. Absolutely, <coughs> you're the conductor when you're in the kitchen. And by the same token, the people who do the recipe is like the people of the orchestra, you know, you give the same recipe to five different people, you have five different dishes. So the interpretation is very important. So this is under the control of the chef d'orchestre. Remember in France, uh, we call chef, when we talk about a chef in the kitchen, we say chef de cuisine. Because in France, we have chef d'orchestre, which is the conductor. We have chef de gare, which is the station master. <laughs> you know, we have mm-hmm. chef is used as chef of something. So, uh, yes, the, 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 the chef in the kitchen, chef de cuisine, you know, is like a chef d'orchestre, you know, a conductor. Yeah, absolutely. And I kind, of, I kind of think that when you watch it on television or film, it often looks like these very experienced sort of figurehead chefs, and all they're doing is reading tickets, right? Uh-huh. But I think unless you've worked on the line to know how vital having a, a conductor is to actually get even not high-end food, but get a hot food out in 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 time, it's critical, right? And you have to have a lot of experience not, to be able to do that. Not only getting it just on time, but getting it so that it tastes exactly the same each time, and that requires quite a lot of practice. And that's where the chef uh, become very important, because uh, if you were to look at someone cooking in the kitchen and take note. Uh, on one order, a chicken with mustard sauce, whatever, and uh, write exactly what the chef do. Then, 15 minutes later, he has another order for the same dish, and he may do it six, seven times during the evening. Well, six, seven times, it tastes exactly the same. If you take your note to know exactly what he did, he will never have done it exactly, exactly the same. <laughs> so it's a question of uh, 
more intuitive. You test, you adjust. You test, you adjust. So you put a little bit of a tablespoon of water. It's too, it's too thick. Uh, you know, a, a dash of consomme, something, a dash of salt. Eventually, it comes out the same way uh, each time. And that's difficult. And that has to be the taste of the chef. The interpretation of that recipe is the way the chef wants it. You know, so... Well, I think that's the amazing thing about cooking, right, is this, this is, it's this very sophisticated combination of art and science. And the science, right, is the chemistry that if you've accidentally added too much water than the last, you know, chicken with mustard you've cooked, then you have to adjust in a different way to compensate to end up with that same flavor, right? But you have to both know the science, back to your techniques behind it, but also have the artistry to improvise to, to adjust, no? It's true, but I mean, you know, you have... You have people, especially now, where a lot of books have been written about the chemistry of cooking. And you have some chemists who can tell you exactly why <laughs> your sauce is going to break down at that temperature. So they can tell you exactly what goes on in the kitchen. They know all of the answer of this. And you go to eat at their house and you have a lousy meal. <laughs> and then you go to eat at the corner of the street in Italy or in Spain or in France or uh, whoever, uh, the little woman who has absolutely no idea, never measure anything, and you're maybe the greatest meal of your life. So, you know, th- both of them are different things that you have to bring together. Very true. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to devote the entire rest of the show to walking down memory lane with Jacques about his time with Julia. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shaxbury Cider, who believe cider can be daring, complex, and eminently drinkable. Located in Vergennes, Vermont, Shaxbury make a broad offering of ciders, from the bright and fruity rosé to inventive, small-batch wild apple fermentation. Each fall, Shaxbury takes to the hills of Vermont to forage for the wild and forgotten fruit that make up their lost apple project. Shaxbury, producer of the first American-made Petnat Cider, continues to experiment every year with limited-edition ciders designed to spotlight locally foraged fruit. To learn more, visit Shaxbury.com or follow them on Instagram at Shaxbury. Welcome back. We're talking to culinary icon, Chef Jacques Pepin. It would be impossible to have Jacques on this program without spending more than just one moment talking about his time with Julia. He's already mentioned a bunch. So we thought rather than limit him to one singular Julia moment, which could just morph into a bunch, we're going to lean into the opportunity and let Jock take us back to that magical time when it was also Julia and Jock. So let's start at the beginning. When, when did you first meet Julia? Well, you know, I came in New York in, uh, at the end of 1959, and uh, the food world was very, very small. I mean, considering that six months later, I knew what I call the trinity of cooking, in America, she's Julia Child, Craig Leborn, and James Beard. And it was in the spring of 1960, uh, I had befriended a, a lady by the name of Helen McCauley. She was the food editor of McCall, how beautiful. She lived next to me in New York, so she kind of became my, my surrogate mother. And uh, that's how I met James Beard and so forth, and even Craig. Uh, so she called me and she said, oh, I have a manuscript of a book there. Someone sent me. Uh, you want to take a look at it? So I came and looked at the Ruth manuscript, which was, of course, the manuscript of Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And uh, I said, well, that's quite good. 
And she said, well, the lady is coming next week to New York. She's from the West Coast. Uh, can uh, you want to cook for her? I said, absolutely. So she said, well, you know, she's a very tall woman and she has a terrible <laughs> voice. But <laughs> So anyway, that's how I met Julia. And I remember that we spoke more French than English. Uh, French at the time was uh, certainly better than my English uh, was at the time. So uh, we became friends uh, at that point. And uh, it's interesting because Julia always said that uh, we started cooking together. And uh, well, we did in some ways. I mean, Julia went to Paris 1949, and I entered apprenticeship in 1949. Of course, she was 23 years or 22 years older than, than, uh, than I was. But uh, the point is that the, the style of cooking, the way things were done at the time, uh, we kind of agree on that. So that's probably maybe one of the reasons that we work well together and we had a good time, even though we argue all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so how would you describe what Julia was like off camera and away from, from maybe a public audience? Well, that's the point that she was exactly, exactly the same. I mean, uh, uh, whether she was on television, off camera and so forth, which is not the case with many other uh, people that have been on television, which get crazy when they're on the air and as soon as the, 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 the television is up, they, 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 someone else. But not with Julia. She was the same. And in that sense, because she had a great... Uh, I don't know. She was very comfortable with herself, confidence in mm. herself. And I have... Uh, Ju- you know, I've been many, many times with her where people will say, what is, uh, uh, I don't know, a new uh, red peppercorn or something, uh, you know, which is just a new thing that no one has heard of. She would never have any problem saying, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. She would ask me, do you know what that is? I say, well, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But then, so, so in, in that sense, uh, she was very natural. And this is one of the reasons... When, uh, when we did our show that we didn't have any recipe. We had no recipe, so uh, the cameramen, of course, were crazy because they didn't know whether we were going right or left or forward. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, it was very natural because uh, it is like cooking with a, with a friend or with a spouse or with a, a kid in the kitchen and you, you follow your own and Paul, the food is there. Well, we knew what we were going to do. I mean, more or less. We say, okay, let's do stew tomorrow or let's do whatever. Yeah, no, it was, so you're saying the cookbooks for uh, Julia and Jacques cooking at home was reverse engineered. Uh-huh. So, so you mentioned this briefly, and I definitely wanted to ask you about this. Your, your on-camera, quote, friendly disagreements with Julia were kind of legendary. So, But did Julia ever really piss you off and where you had to sort of really speak to her about it? Or, I mean, I'm assuming off-camera, or it was always kind of... No, no, I, I think that uh, the, the, the disagreement we had were, were really... Uh, uh, Superfluous, you know, they were they were not important. Like she like, uh, uh, I like, uh, you know, kosher salt, for example. She doesn't. She like regular salt. You know, I like uh, black peppercorn. She like white pepper. You know, so but those are not very important. We had disagreement. Uh, it's interesting because we received many letters that she was much more French than <laughs> I was, and it was true in many ways. So we had disagreement. 
sometimes on the old way of doing certain uh, classic French uh, recipe uh, that I didn't do this way anymore. For example, when we did spinach, we had once. So the spinach in France, we used to drop the spinach into a pot of boiling water, bring it to a strong boil, uh, cook it one or two minutes, drain it, cool it under cold water, and press it into a bowl of cooked spinach. And then if someone orders spinach, then you take a bowl of that, you melt some butter, you add it, you saute it, and so forth. Well, of course, with the spinach there, I said, no, I took a handful of spinach, put it directly into a skillet with some olive oil, a bit of butter, a dash of salt, paper, I cover it, the steam. No, she didn't want to do it that. So <laughs> she kept testing my spinach, and she said, it's tough. No, that spinach <laughs> is tough this way. It's not as good. It's bitter. It's not as good. So, so I keep testing it and say, no, it's very tender. I think it's fine. You know, so anyway, we had those type of uh, funny disagreements. And also, I have to say, when we started the show, prior she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I don't know. What do you want to do? She said, why don't you do a list of what you want to do, and I'll do a list of what I want to do. And she did a list of like, uh, I don't know, 50, 80 dish, and I did the same thing. And I believe that uh, three or four of my dish made it, and the rest mothers. You know, so. <laughs> So that was uh, that was funny, but it was fine for me. Uh, certainly, other professional chefs looking at it from another point of view. I like to cook without uh, without recipe much better than cooking with recipe. So as long as uh, we had ingredients on the table, I was going to cook them one way or the other. You know, so that was that was fun, and uh, it uh, you know it helps you to to kind of create. A type of cuisine which is more personal, a type of cuisine d'opportunité, you know, in mm. the sense that why did you put scallion in there? Well, I had a bunch of scallion on the table, so I thought it was a good idea, so I then put them in, which if you follow a recipe, you don't do that. Well, I think one of uh, you you kind of described, I think, something fundamental about Julia's appeal was she really was sort of a stand in for people who were really interested in learning to cook, but a little bit fearful and really wanted elaborate roadmaps uh-huh. versus someone who's maybe a more intuitive cook like you're describing your, yourself. Do you, do you think that's true? It's probably true. Yes, it's probably true because we were trained in different ways, you know, Uh and for me, the training was, uh, you know, more automatic in a sense. I mean, cooking. And, and uh, for her, she went on work. I mean, went to the Cordon Bleu, went and started cooking a great deal, but went and worked and worked on those recipes probably more than I work on recipe. You know, doing it, perfectioning the recipe, doing it again and so forth. So, uh, yeah, but... One doesn't. Uh, I mean, the first time, or one, uh, the first time my wife went to to Julia's house, uh, it was in seventy eight, I believe, uh, uh, yeah, or seventy six, whatever. When I when I did after I did La Technique, it was seventy six, yes. And uh, so uh, we we came in the back, in the back of her house. You know, we never came through the front. The only time I went through the front of her house, it's when Paul wanted to show me the stand window that he made, which were uh, part of the front door. But otherwise, we came through the back, and uh, we ended up in the kitchen, and there was an oil cloth on the table with the crumb from the... Uh, you know, from the lunch, whatever, and she just sweep it up and she said, okay, what do you want to cook? So each time I went to her house, 
you know, she said, what do you want to cook? I said, what do you have? And then we start getting stuff out of the refrigerator and we start cooking. During that time, my wife and, uh, and Paul made cocktail and, uh, and uh, <laughs> talk about things, you know. So, so we were, in that sense, comfortable with one another. And of course, certainly, Julia was the anti-snub, you know. So uh, she had no problem uh, with having food, uh, you know. I mean, she loved, of course, to have great, great food from a garden, too. But I mean, she wasn't the one who said that there is no way you can cook unless you have the greatest, the purest, the most organic ingredient, uh, which, of course, is better. But uh, not everyone can afford it, you know. And she realized that perfectly well. So she wasn't demanding a lobster souffle each time you entered her kitchen. Oh no, <laughs> no. <laughs> so you, I wanted to talk to you more about that because I think it's such a such a special thing. You have a kind of trifecta experience with her kitchen, as you were just describing. You've been there socially as Julia's uh, friend, and uh, but you've also performed, uh, you know, teaching on camera for a show in the kitchen. And uh, do. Are they similar experiences, or actually, did it transform into a set? What is what is that iconic kitchen really sort of mean well, for the you? The point is, you have to realize that we we, we did not uh, we did not rehearse, so we so when we started the, any of the show, we did not rehearse at all. So we didn't really know exactly what would come out of that, and she liked to surprise me all the time. You know, like when we started a souffle and she came out with a gun to start the competition of me beating egg white by hand and her beating egg white with the, with the machine, you know. So, so she would do that all the time. Or the, the time, uh, I don't know, she, she dressed, uh, uh, it was the, the, the salad, uh, uh, what did we do? We did the, the salad, one of the salads that she actually created or, or, I mean, recreated that she had when she was a young woman. She told me in the... In the I don't know, in Mexico, in, you know, the, the, the Caesar salad. So she, she came as dressed as Caesar to <laughs> the Caesar salad. Which, of course, has a lot to do with a salad from Mexico. Yeah, right. So are you saying that when she would do her crazy costumes or stunts or props, that she usually did them without you knowing in advance that she would oh, do them? Oh, absolutely. Never, I never knew what she was going to do, that's for sure. And she always, you know, she was happy to work for PBS, as I am. Uh, hundreds of times she said that. You know, uh, we don't have to, to, to call to, to sponsor, we don't have to endorse anything and so forth. And it's true. And she was happy to do that uh, as I am. But, uh, for example, when, uh, when uh, two, two, two sponsors of the series, one of them was uh, Jess Jackson, you know, the, the Kendall Jackson company. Mm-hmm, the and uh, the other one was Lando Lake. So I knew Jess Jackson uh, personally. He sponsored already one of my shows before, and his wife, Barbara Banky. And they were very, very generous people. And they had uh, a company called, in addition to Kendall Jackson, Artisan and Estate, called La Crema, Stone Street. It's like 40 winery. And in addition to that, just told me, you know, you can use French wine, Italian wine, whatever you want, it's fine with me. So they were very, very generous this way. So one time they called and they said, can, uh, can we come and uh, uh, look at one of the shows? We fly in and we want to take you out and uh, Julia and you out for dinner. I said, terrific. So they came. So the producer, you know, Jeff told me, all right, what are you going to drink? What are you going to? I said, 
Jeff, I mean, we always start the show by having a glass of white wine or whatever. It's not that we don't drink, so I don't know what we're going to drink. But So we had wine throughout the show. I forget what we cooked, but I knew we had some type of meat at the end. So at the end of the show, I tell Julie, okay, what, what do you want with that? you want a Merlot or maybe a, a Cabernet or whatever? She said, I want beer. I said, what do you mean you want beer? We don't have beer. She said, we have beer. She had beer underneath. She had, so it was all planned for her. So she came out of, with the beer, uh, which we drank on stage. So uh, that was, you know, I say, you know, we don't have to cow to, to the sponsor, but we don't have to antagonize, to antagonize them, you know. Yeah, Jeff, Dr- Jeff Drummond has talked to me before and, and publicly to lots of people about that Julia really had this mischievous streak. Oh, yeah, and do, of course. Do you, and do you take that moment that it was being mischievous or do you think it was she was really trying to show her independence or just a combination of both? Yeah, I, I would say a combination of both without any question there because she did the same thing with the, with the butter. And, you know, I, uh, I, I would put half a stick of butter in a dish and uh, Julia came out and put another half stick. I said, Julia, two, no, no, it's better. You have to put butter. So, fine. So we have the people of Lando Lake who came. I forget what the president or whatever. So Jeff again said, what are you going to cook? I said, well, I'm starting with a with an apple tart, so I'm going to do the dough. Julia is going to help me. And then uh, it was maybe 15 minutes before we start that show. And all of a sudden, Julia said, I, I, want, to do, I want to do my own dough. So I say, great, that, that's fantastic. Great, okay. So we start the show. I did, I did my, my dough. I roll it. She helped me slice the apple, too. We put sugar, whatever. We put it into the oven. And I say, okay, well, Julia is going to show you another dough now. And, of course, she turned around. She said, well, Jack is going to do it. I said, oh, okay. She already did that. And she said, I want you to do it in the food processor. I said, well, that's a good idea. To show people how to do it this way. So I said, what, two cups of flour? She said, yes. I said, a dash of salt, dash of pep, dash of salt, dash of sugar. I said, how much butter you want in there? She said, I want Crisco. I said, what do you mean you want Crisco? <laughs> we don't have Crisco. Up, she had a can of Crisco underneath. <laughs> So we grabbed the Crisco and we put half Crisco and half butter and we did another dough and I forget what we did with it. But again, probably as you said, it was a way for her to show, you know, her, her, uh, to be mischievous, but also to, to show that uh, she was not, um, you, know, you know, catering to anyone. So, yeah. Yes, no, I mean, most people who said that they did, even not on television, but just in front of an audience, performances with Julia, she just really kept you on your game because she was just legendary for either doing what you just described or just deciding, you you know, the group had planned on doing um, crayfish for the morning. And she was like, no, let's do trout five minutes before. Oh, yeah, she already did that. I mean, sometimes she wanted to change. I said, Julia, we can't. You told me beef yesterday. I have two filets I bought. You want a, a loin of pork? We don't have it. So uh, anyway, but but it's true. When when we were doing a tour together, one time we were in Sasabi in New York. And uh, so we were a, a big crowd and we were going to have dinner with uh, all kind of important people on top at the end, which we did. And then I have a friend of mine, you know, Molly Safer from 60 Minutes, lives in uh, here. He lives next to me in Connecticut. So I knew him for four years and years. So uh, I don't know. I think, uh, I don't know, the producer, whether, do you think that uh, Molly would be the moderator for both of you? 
So I said, well, I'm sure I'm going to ask him. So I asked, and Morley was a tough guy, but he was kind of impressed by Julia. I said, you know, I've never met Julia. I said, well, you know, you're going to. He said, well, why don't we have a drink first in the, in the green room and we discuss. I said, yeah, okay, let's all go have a drink in the green room first, but there is nothing to discuss. I told Morley because we have no plan. There is never any plan for that, and you never know what she's going to say. What I was so, I mean, it's useless. He said, okay. So we started the show, and uh, 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 Morley introduced Julia, and he introduced me. And then right away, he opened for question. The first question woman asked, she talks uh, about, she said, oh, my, my, my uncle used to do a, a leg of lamb, this, that, do something. Like that. And of course, Julia turned around, and she said, this is a real stupid question. <laughs> Directly, she tells him. The guy or the woman, it was a woman. So I turned toward Molly. I said, see, see, I told you, there's absolutely no way you're going to organize anything. Uh, you know, it comes out the way it comes out. That's it, you know, that's the way it was with Julia. And why, why do you think, do you think there was a method to the madness or was it just, you know, the fame gave her license to, to do what she wants? Or was there really kind of even if it was a subconscious strategy to it? No, I think that uh, she was, pl- that's why she was exactly the same way off camera or on camera. If she said something was uh, stupid that didn't make any sense, she would say so, as well as she said, no, I don't know what uh, that piece of meat is or uh, that ingredient is. She had absolutely no, no problem about admitting. Uh, so she, I felt, you know, that she was a person who was very... You know, very, very um, confident uh, with herself and uh, with what she was doing and all that. And she didn't take it too seriously, you know, uh, in, in other way. That's why she could joke about it. And uh, uh, But at the same time, she took it seriously in the sense that I have never been uh, to a restaurant with Julia and I've been to many restaurants with Julia, uh, that she wouldn't go to the kitchen to say hello to the people and shake the hand of the dishwasher and everyone else, that, that always, you know. On the other hand, one time I remember we went to eat at Le Cirque or Chirco in New York. So I call, uh, that's when we were discussing the show. So I call Sirio. Uh, 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 and I said, we're coming for lunch. He said, okay, so we sit, the two of us, somewhere else. And she really didn't realize that people at the next table were looking at us. Two people in the kitchen, uh, there was a kitchen with a window. They were looking to see what Julia was wearing. And she ordered, she ordered uh, we ordered different type of things, but one of them, I remember, we had little string beans. And I knew when the spring beans came, I knew just looking at them that they were not cooked enough for, the, for her. Mm. And I, I'm like that. I don't like it when it's just blanche. I want it to be cooked. But she continued talking. She took the string beans, shoot some of it uh, with her hand, took what she had in her mouth and threw it on the floor under the table and keep talking to me and keep doing that. And the people <laughs> they know, were looking at us, the kitchen were looking at us. She didn't realize. She, we keep talking about what we were doing. But she, I've seen her that doing that several times too. <laughs> she had no problem with that. <laughs> yes, very down to earth. And oh, in, absolutely. In, yes. in a certain way. So on that note, I really wanted to ask you, uh, do you do you think you know, just knowing Julia so personally like, like that, and from you know, like you said, going back a really long way in all kinds of situations? When you think of Julia, do you think of her as a fellow culinary icon? Oh, absolutely, yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she did influence really many more people than uh, 
then I did, and she was, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I saw her changing the, 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 the shape or the, the way television was done. Uh, because still now, I mean, I was with, uh, I don't know, a woman a, a while ago who said she was a culinary historian, and she said that there are 405 cookery shows on television. Well, I don't know if there is 405. That sounds <laughs> a lot to me, but even if there is 300. But, I mean, the show which are done now uh, have often not much to do with cooking. However, on PBS... And it's Julia who started on PBS. Uh, we still teach cooking. I think whether it's Lydia Bastianich or, or Ming Tsai, you know, uh, uh, or me, we do want, because even when uh, what I learned from Julia certainly was, uh, uh, she told me at the beginning several times, you're too serious. You know, this is television, this is entertainment. You know, it's too serious. Yeah, we are cooking, but, and she was right. So I did. On the other hand, she wanted to entertain people, but at the end of each of the show, when we talked, she said, okay, what did they learn today? I mean, there was still the teaching element which was very important for her and still is to a certain extent on PBS and thanks to her. Well, there you go. One icon describing another. Thank you for that. So you do you have a favorite Jacques or Julia and Jacques moment? Share yours with us via email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. After the break, Jacques is going to share a final Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Michael Harlan Turkel, and I'm the host of The Food Scene here on HRN. This show explores the intersection of food, art, and design by talking to people who are inspired by these ideas. The show features food photographers, food stylists, interior designers, and so much more. All the players that make the world so visually delicious. You can find The Food Scene wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen... Who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we asked our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. We've already talked a lot about this with Jacques, but do do you have an official one for posterity to do your Julia moment? Well, I would say that uh, Julia, I think of her, especially when she came to my house to eat and uh, the way she was with the guests around the table and so forth. She was so down to earth and happy. I also always think of her in terms of my daughter, Claudine, because I knew Julia before my daughter was born, and uh, she's 51 now. So when Claudine uh, turned to be in her... uh, uh, After high school, she went uh, to to Boston University. So when I went to BU, often we met with my daughter and I took her to Julia and so forth. So she became fond of Julia and became very good at imitating her, her voice to the point that uh, we would be eating and uh, Claudine would call and my wife pick up the telephone and uh, Claudine would say, Oh, it's Julia. She would imitate and my <laughs> wife would say, Claudine, uh, please, we're eating. The call. And she said, <laughs> and one time the telephone 
rang and Gloria pick it up again. And she said, Claudine, stop doing that. We don't have time. And all of a sudden she said, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, Julia. No, no, I'm sorry. I'll call him. I'll call him. He's right there. So we end up, you know, confusing Claudine with, uh, with Julia. So that was uh, something always that we did funny in the kitchen. And very often when, the, when Claudine came to eat at the house, I still ask her, do your Julia impersonation. You know, so. That's so lovely and funny. And I'm sure, I'm sure Julia was very amused by that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It is always, as I said, an honor and privilege to get to talk to Jacques Pepin. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Todd. Thank you for having me. And I'll have a glass of wine for Julia now. So We all should. Excellent idea. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to follow us on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at tshulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. To keep up on the latest from Jacques, he's at Jacques underscore Pepin on Twitter and at Chef Jacques Pepin on Facebook. And Pepin is P-E-P-I-N. To learn more about the Jacques Pepin Foundation, go to jp.foundation. And they are at Jacques Pepin Foundation, all spelled out, on Facebook and Instagram. Jacques' most recent cookbook is A Grandfather's Lessons in the Kitchen with Shori, published by frequent collaborator Rux Martin, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Recipes and highlights from Jacques' most recent television series, Jacques Pepin Heart and Soul, can be found on kqed.org forward slash Heart. And that's a wrap for season four of Inside Julia's Kitchen. We'll be back in May with more brand new episodes. During the break, we encourage you to catch up on any that you may have missed. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novia Veltorni. Please give us a review. Do that if you haven't yet. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We are on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next season on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage, and thanks for listening. <laughs>